0: This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded.
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24 7 plus with premiums as low as zero dollars per month i can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check independence has given me coverage i can count on and they'll do the same for you learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com
2: Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHD HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen,
0: seven months or ten months, Is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine.
2: Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
3: Good evening, and welcome to this very special edition of Your Radio Doctor, show number 150. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and to mark the occasion, I've invited Dr. Paul Offit to update us on the COVID-19 pandemic and what the future may hold. Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. He's a professor of pediatrics and the Maurice Hillman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a world-renowned expert in infectious diseases, the study of immunology, viruses, and vaccines. He's also the co-creator of Rototech, an oral vaccine for the rotavirus, which can cause life-threatening diarrhea in children each year around the world. He's been recognized with countless prestigious awards for his research and teaching from universities, national medical societies, the NIH, and the list includes another 75 awards. He's been an advisor to the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC, and many scientific committees. Quoted in Newsweek, seen on TV, but his favorite place to visit is here on Your Radio Doctor. Welcome, Paul.
4: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
3: (laughs) Paul, I just look to you as a fountain of information. So let's start with um, a question that my patients often ask me. Some people may have avoided an apparent case of COVID. Uh, Actually, right now, I'm COVID negative times two, despite the sound of my voice, but people might be curious, have they ever had it? Is there a blood test to look for evidence that somebody may have had an asymptomatic case or a mild version? So
4: yes. Well, one way to tell, obviously, is to um, do either a PCR test, which tests for the presence of the viral gene you know, in your upper respiratory tract. The second thing is an antigen test. I mean, those are proofs. But assuming that, mm-hmm. that time has passed you never you had a cold like symptoms you never tested yourself is there a blood test that you can get so there is one um, you look to see whether or not you have antibodies against mm-hmm. one of the viral proteins specifically the so-called nucleoprotein and the reason that tells you that you've been uh, uh, previously infected is that um, the vaccine induces antibodies only against one of the four SARS-CoV-2 proteins, and that's the uh, the spike protein. So if you have antibodies to the nuclear protein, that tells you that you've been infected previously.
3: That makes perfect sense. And I hope people appreciate that because it is confusing if people are not immunologists, and even some doctors may not have been able to break that down. Beautiful. So the vaccine goes after that spike protein, but the virus loves all kinds of proteins. Um, so Does Omicron, the the latest variant or the one that popped up last year in September, does that have a higher secondary attack rate? Because I know it is more contagious.
4: Right. I, I think, you know, that we've watched just a series, a series of variants that have been progressively more contagious. I mean, the original strain, the so-called ancestral strain or Wuhan 1 strain, the strain that raised its head in China in October, November of 2019, was ultimately replaced by a series of variants. The first one was called D614G. It never had a Greek letter designation. And that was, was replaced, the original strain, because it was more contagious. And then that was replaced by the alpha variant, because it was more contagious. Then the delta variant, because it was more contagious. Then the original Omicron variant, which was so-called the BA1 variant, because it was more contagious. So these are are very contagious. And and so um, even if you've been previously infected or vaccinated, um, you could still get a mild infection. But the good news is, is that previous infection or vaccination does protect you against serious illness, which is the goal, but it's not going to protect you for very long against mild illness. We're going to be living with this virus for decades, if not longer. And I think we can expect that, like um, influenza or respiratory syncytial virus or the other sort of winter respiratory viruses, that this virus, SARS-CoV-2, will join that pantheon of winter respiratory viruses that you see pretty much every year causing you know thousands and thousands of hospitalizations and, and deaths.
3: Mm-hmm. And we had a great conversation the other day. Thank you for your time. And the same holds for the rotavirus. Let's spend a little time with that because it has saved probably hundreds of thousands of children around the world It took you 25 years to to really get that perfected. Let's talk about that for a second.
4: Right. So it wasn't just me. Uh, um, I was part of a team that included Stan, Dr. Stan Plotkin and Fred Clark, and then all the hundreds of researchers around the world who worked on rotavirus. But you're right. The, the um, rotavirus was a virus that in this country causes fever, vomiting, diarrhea, primarily in children between six and 24 months of age. And people who are as old as me know that that when, in the, when the winter came, you would see, at least at our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we'd see 400 admissions a year in babies who were dehydrated. Man. There were 75,000 hospitalizations a Year from that virus in this country and 60 deaths a year. But in the world, that, that virus killed 500,000 children a year. I mean, as many as 2,000 children a day. Um, so that vaccine then came out in uh, 2006, Rotatected, then Rotorix, another rotavirus vaccine came out a couple of years later. And so those vaccines definitely are saving um, thousands or arguably tens of thousands of lives
3: every year. Mm-hmm. And you've brought the death rate down to a very low percentage. So we consider it a bonus or it is a win successful because mild cases, fewer hospitalizations, and fewer deaths which is the goal of any vaccine,
4: yes? That's right. Certainly the goal of these kinds of viruses. I mean, so rotavirus, just like SARS-CoV-2, just like COVID, is a short incubation period mucosal infection, meaning from the time when you're exposed to the time that you get symptoms is short. When you, Those kinds of viruses, you're never going to eliminate. What, what you're trying to do is a so-called flatten the curve, save the healthcare system, keep people out of the hospital, out of the intensive care unit, mm-hmm. and out of the morgue. And and I, I think the COVID vaccine now is doing a very good job of that. The rotavirus vaccine certainly is. Um, but I think you, it's uh, a lot to expect that you would ever eliminate those viruses because I don't think that's going to happen. Sure.
3: And with your experience, I'm, I'm listening to you more than somebody who's kind of out there guessing. Is there a condition uh, known as long COVID? Do you believe that exists? How common is it? And how would you say it manifests?
4: Yes. I think it's real. I think it's probably more than one thing. And I think that's probably uh, where people get confused. It's defined differently. I mean, some people will say long COVID is a persistence of symptoms four months after the original infection or eight, I'm sorry, four weeks later, or eight weeks later, or 12 weeks later. Um, and, and there are definitely um, overlapping um, problems that I think are associated with long COVID. So for example, some people will have sort of persistent clotting. In their lungs or other organs which cause symptoms. Uh, some people have this sort of hyper um, uh, dysregulated immune system which can cause problems. I think for some people, the virus may continue to reproduce itself for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Each of those problems would be associated with a different solution, and they're not uh, mutually exclusive. And I think we're going to learn about that over the next year or two three, but it's certainly true that a vaccination definitely decreases your chance of having this problem.
3: Mm-hmm. And I was gonna ask too, is there a definition? It sounds as though if a person has COVID and the symptoms remain for at least four weeks, is that a fairly reasonable cutoff? Or if they recur later, let's say somebody, uh, their symptoms improve, might symptoms come back at another time? Is that part of long COVID?
4: Yes, I think that is true. By the way, COVID isn't the only uh, infection that does that. You can also sure. see sort of long-term symptoms with influenza, with Ebola virus, I mean, with uh, Epstein-Barr virus, which is the virus that causes mono. So it's this is not unique to SARS-CoV-2. I think we, we pay special attention to this because we're paying so much attention to this virus.
3: And it came on fast and furiously. And uh, I guess one of the other issues that we'll learn more about as time goes by is if somebody was seriously ill or if they had been in intensive care they're more likely to have ptsd or prolonged psychological or, or psychiatric issues which are were vitally important too sometimes we don't recognize that as readily um could long covid create new issues as well could somebody uh who has severe episode end up with diabetes later on is that a possibility
4: so so that was thought to be true early on, and I think what ended up happening, because you saw that as COVID sort of hit, that um, there was a period of time when there was a, a definite increase in hosp- children, uh, certainly in children hospitalized with uh with diabetes and and but a more careful analysis showed that what was really happening was because we were frankly scared to go for routine care or, or emergency department care um, because of the fear of being around mm-hmm. a lot of people um, who you didn't know. There there once we got more comfortable going to you know healthcare settings, then there was the increase. I think that I think that's all that was. So I don't mm-hmm. think diabetes is on that list. But and and also the other thing um, which you alluded to is that. You know, I think there was a price to pay, a psychological price to pay for 2020 when we isolated and quarantined and, you know, shuttered schools and closed businesses and restricted travel. I think there was a psychological hit to that, which I think also caused long-term problems, which is to say clinical depression. If you look at the general symptoms, they're most common with long COVID. They're fatigue, muscle ache, brain fog, and, you know, all of those things can be associated with clinical depression. So I think that's also part of it.
3: And as you say, other viruses have done the same walk, prolonged mono from uh, EBV when people have prolonged symptoms of fatigue, et cetera. Um, So Paul, would you say that um, with the, the immunity, how does the immunity compare in a person who's had the actual viral infection versus immunity from the vaccination? Six to eight months.
4: Right, so so there's been a number of studies that have looked at this. I, I think you can make the following conclusions. Uh, certainly, infection does induce immunity that, that protects against serious illness. No doubt about it. I think that if you're if you were infected, um, there is an additional protection, a sort of a breadth and longevity of pr- protection that comes with vaccination. So I think the, the way we're now a little more than two years into having a vaccine, I, it, based on recent studies, I think that, that that if you've had three doses of an mRNA-containing vaccine, and at least two of those doses were separated by, say, about four months at least, or you've had two doses of vaccine and a natural infection, I think you're likely protected against severe disease for a while. I, certainly, and, and that is assumes that you're less than 75 and otherwise mm-hmm. healthy.
3: And the other big goal initially was herd immunity. In other words, if, am I correct and the goal was 80%, if we could get about 80% of the population vaccinated, or if we are sure that at least 80% combination of vaccine and infection, that there'd be no fewer homes for the bug to land and inhabit, Yes.
4: Well, we're certainly there in terms of the percentage of population that's either been previously infected or vaccinated or both. Uh, Most recent CDC data suggests that that figures around 96%. So most people have been either vaccinated or previously infected. Remember, the goal of of immunity with this kind of virus is to keep you from having severe disease. This virus is going to continue to circulate and continue to cause mild disease in many and continue to cause severe disease in some, just like rotavirus. I mean, rotavirus, although we basically eliminate it the Hospitalizations that we saw with, with rotavirus, it still the virus still circulates. In the
3: and I remember when Ebola was in the news, how many years ago was that? 1520? And I remember the infectious disease docs with whom I work said that was around in the 1920s and 1930s, it just didn't have as many uh, condominiums to visit. Let's take a little break and we'll be back with Dr. Paul Offit from Children's Hospital Philadelphia. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie,
5: exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at IBX.com.
3: Welcome back to our anniversary show number 150 with our very special guest, Dr. Paul Offit. Paul, we talked about some basic questions that people have had now that we're really March will open the door for uh, moving forward. It was three years ago that this all began. Our first lockdown was about March 14th of 2020. Boosters, where are we now? You wrote uh, an incredible editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine last April. Let's talk about that a little. Right. So
4: we've evolved from so-called monovalent booster dosing, which included only that original strain, the ancestral strain, the original recipe vaccine. Now you have the so-called bivalent boosters, which is both the ancestral strain plus a strain, uh, the BA4, BA5, which is one of the Omicron subvariants. Um, That booster dose is as good as the Wuhan strain, the original recipe. I, I don't think it's any better, but the good news is boosters boost. And I think for certain groups who are most likely to be hospitalized, most likely to go to the intensive care unit, this this booster dose is important. And so those groups include, I think people say um, over 70 or 75 years of age, people who have... Um, comorbidities, meaning health problems that make them medically frail or even a, a mild illness could land them in the hospital, people who are immune compromised because they're receiving drugs that uh, dampen or suppress their immune system, and, and pregnant women. So I think those four groups benefit from a booster, but I, I guess I don't um, quite see the need to boost everyone over six months of age that is not that are not in that high-risk group.
3: Mm-hmm. And I read through your article, and I know... <clears throat> that as you say, the first vaccination or the first vaccine was proven 95% effective in the goal of preventing severe disease. And then uh, you made a really important distinction that boosters encourage antibodies, but the T cell is a different player in the immune system. How does that factor into the reasoning here?
4: Right. So so I think probably if you look at the first six months of, of dealing with this vaccine, that probably answers this question best. When the vaccine was first considered by our committee, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, in December of 2020, Pfizer and Moderna both presented their data. And what they found was that protection against all manner of illness, mild, moderate, severe, was 95%. And people thought, great, this vaccine is highly effective against all manner of symptomatic illness. Then six months went by. And what you found was protection against severe disease was still excellent in the 90% range, but protection against mild illness had faded and that had to happen. So the question, because what happens is protection against mild illness is for the most part mediated by neutralizing antibodies that are present at the time of exposure. Now, so why did it work so well initially? why was it 95% effective back in December of 2020? The answer is those studies were done over a period of three months. So most of those participants had just gotten their second dose. When six months had gone by and neutralizing antibodies or antibodies had started to fade, they now were again susceptible to mild illness. But the good news is they can remain protected against severe illness because protection against severe illness is mediated in large part by T cells, which are generally longer lived. That's good news. And even better news is that they recognize parts of the virus that are pretty conserved. So if you look, for example, the first virus, the Wuhan strain, and compare it to the current strains, like the so-called XBB15 strain, those viruses are not that different in terms of the, the sites that are recognized by T cells. It's still still 80 to 85 percent conserved. That's why you're still protected against severe illness. I mean, Take me, for example. I had three doses of vaccine. My third dose was like in November of 2021. And then six months later, I had a mild two-day infection with probably uh, a, a BA2, one of the Omicron variants. But I was protected against severe disease. And so because I had gotten those vaccines and and I, the T cell recognition sites
3: were still largely conserved. Beautiful explanation. And I think coming from you with that logical explanation, the T cells give us that really big, broad, long, strong uh, resistance or protection. And the boosters just boost the little memory cells that cut co- that, that rise and fall, that come and fade. So you can boost and boost and boost and the same thing's gonna happen. The big guys, the T cells protect us from the severe infections, hospitalizations and death. And that's the goal of all of this because I would think too, that if we keep knocking on the same door and put all our our immune system energized toward the original uh, variants, they're not gonna be equipped, they're gonna be distracted when a new variant comes along, yes? Well, that would,
4: that's my biggest fear. My biggest, biggest yeah. right now, you know, the even inoculated, being inoculated with that Wuhan strain is still protecting against severe disease. Would it be possible for a virus to arise that now resists protection against severe disease? So even if you've been previously infected or you've been vaccinated or both, that you still are highly susceptible to severe disease. If that's true, then we're starting all over again then we're going to have to vaccinate the entire population all over again with this new strain. And I don't think that's going to happen, but you should probably never make predictions about this virus because you're always wrong. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I hope it doesn't happen.
3: And in the words of Dr. Paul A. Offit, we should remain humble because you've been on this timeline of studying viruses and our natural responses to them, and we have to listen to you. Um, And I think when as we spoke the other day, too, and your article explained so well, we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, mild illness and asymptomatic infections do not resent, represent failure of our vaccinations or boosters. They're not breakthroughs. Tell us about that a little bit. Right. I think the
4: first major communications error with this vaccine occurred in July, on July 4th of 2021, when now you're 6 months into into the vaccine. There was a, there was a an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thousands of men get together, they're celebrating the July 4th holiday. About 80% are vaccinated. Nonetheless, there's an outbreak of COVID. So 346 men who had been vaccinated nonetheless got COVID. Now, four of those 346, or 1.2%, were hospitalized. That's a vaccine that's working very well if you have Mm -hmm. that level of, of protection. The other 342 had either mild or asymptomatic infection, which unfortunately the CDC in their report of this particular outbreak labeled breakthroughs. Now, breakthrough implies failure. That wasn't a failure. That was a moment actually to celebrate this vaccine. It had prevented hospitalizations. All the other people who were, who were exposed to the virus and infected were only mildly asymptomatically infected. In fact, Brett Kavanaugh, as part of a routine screen as a Supreme Court justice, was found to be positive around that time. And the media carried this with the word breakthrough. You would have thought with the breathlessness with which the CNN and, and others were carrying this that he was fighting for his life, which wasn't true. He just had an asymptomatic infection because he'd been vaccinated.
3: Breakthrough, breakthrough, breathless breath. Um, And then in uh, August of 21, there was an announcement or a suggestion that everyone be boosted. Is that when that kind of started?
4: Right. So on August 18th of 2021, President Biden stood up in front of the country and announced that as of the week of September 20th of 2021, that a booster dose would be available for everyone over 16 years of age. Now, at the time, it was a two-dose vaccine, and two doses looked like they continue to protect well against serious disease. And that was true right up through the end of just 2020 before Omicron came in. So when he said that, what he did was he implied that two doses wasn't enough, that people weren't protected. So again, you sort of inadvertently damned the vaccine. And then when our committee, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, met on September 17th to consider what he had said, um, we voted against it. So so it was an example of of the sort of, uh, of politics trumping science a little bit. I mean, we should, if if you have advisory committees to the FDA or to the CDC, um, mm-hmm. let them make that recommendation. I think well, the politics sort of got ahead of the science mm-hmm. on that.
3: And I think that adds to the confusion too. Are you, quote unquote, are you fully vaccinated? What does that mean? You can see how people toss terms around, even people who chat in of conversation in passing or, you know, they in the beginning when people were, um, you know, people were being encouraged to get vaccinated, listen to your pastor. listen, And all kinds of people from schools and all were saying, this is what you should do. And they were mixing metaphors and using terms that really led to confusion, including, are you fully vaccinated? What does fully vaccinated mean? Well, it's
4: actually more of a legal term than anything else, I, and it has to do with sort of whether the degree which, or the degree to which, a product is uh, authorized or licensed. And so the terms that were born were fully vaccinated mm-hmm. if you've gotten two doses, and then up to date if you've gotten your boosters. But I think. People are confused right now. I, yeah. I think, but if you asked a hundred Americans, do you, you know, what does it mean to be protected against uh, COVID? I think you'd get a hundred different answers. People just mm-hmm. are a little confused. There certainly is booster fatigue at this point because look what happened. You know, the government um, bought roughly one hundred seventy-one million doses of this bivalent vaccine, and then recommended it for everybody over six months of age. And maybe fifty million doses have been distributed, mm-hmm. and mostly to those who probably are at highest risk. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think most people think they don't need it, mm-hmm. it is, as it says. And I think, frankly, I agree with them to some extent that at least if you're if you're healthy and young, that you probably don't need another dose, assuming you've had three doses of vaccine or two doses plus one uh, infection.
3: Yeah, and you say the people who probably need it most are those over age 70, 75-ish, or with comorbidities or immunosuppression or pregnancy. Um, so masks, let's talk about that for a minute because we got used to wearing masks to a degree Maybe it wasn't so so positive for children and who are learning to speak and need to see people people's uh, expressions in the teaching setting, but this recent article that said masks don't make a difference. What say you?
4: Right. So this was covered in the New York Times just within the last twenty four hours. The so called Cochrane collaboration um, that was a flawed meta analysis, and there there's actually there's a um, a an epidemiologist whose name is Caitlin. Jedalina, and she calls herself your local epidemiologist, but she actually had a uh, review that she has a Substack stack um, where you can find her, her stuff, Caitlin and hmm. Jed- Caitlin uh, uh, Janelina, but she, if you take a look at that, she does a really nice deconstruction of the problems with that article and masks work. Uh, they, they certainly work. I mean, there was a study in Bangladesh where they offered some communities a, a, a mask and didn't offer it to other communities. And you clearly saw a decrease in spread. So they're not absolute and some masks are better than others. And, and the question is how you define the word works. Um, but I think in terms of protecting against severe illness, masks are a value and true, it should be used certainly in places like the hospital you know, chronic care facilities, uh, long-term care facilities, yeah.
3: Well, you touched on so many important points there, Paul, because, A, if they're worn um, even perfectly, perfectly sealed around your nose and mouth, it's a very contagious virus, and some of those little critters are going to sneak out. But you'll walk through a store or a school or a, a large group of people, and you'll see that, you know, that the the... the sign on the front door will say masks are required, but you see a lot of people wearing it under their nose. So there are lots of reasons why it may not work. But I think the other important thing is when you're wearing a mask, maybe it's a little bit of a reminder to change all of your behavior. I remember talking on the show about a year and a half ago, and I present the idea of airports being super spreaders because we, we touch, it's all tactile. And if you're in a restroom, you notice how many people are in a rush Uh, maybe not just to catch a plane, but routinely do not wash their hands. And then they're touching that kiosk or they're touching other surfaces that we really should be mindful of all the cooties that are shared (laughs) when we don't wash our hands. Please wash our hands. On that note, let's take a little break and maybe my voice will start to cooperate. And we'll be back with Dr. Paul Offit. and now for your real champion i call this segment ode to a mentor as medical students we study all specialties during my time in surgery i was convinced i'd be a hand surgeon but on the first day of internal medicine i opened the chart of a patient with a complex case of crohn's disease along came a dignified senior attending who sat down introduced himself as dr franz goldstein and gave me a private lesson on inflammatory bowel disease then thanked me for listening and for helping to care for his patient this was a scholar and a gentleman with time i saw him as a mentor spellbound by his interaction with each patient listening well responding with caring detailed explanations every word every action reflected his empathy and commitment i quickly realized that I walked in the shadow of a living encyclopedia. After I trained in GI, I was fortunate to join his practice at Lancome Hospital and became a partner. He never referred to me as a woman doctor, never treated me as his junior partner. I was always his respected colleague. Over the years, I became fascinated by Franz Goldstein, the man, methodical, punctual, calm. He quoted medical literature back to the 1930s, loved the opera, spoke five languages without an accent and his backyard looked like Longwood gardens. It wasn't until the eve of his 90th birthday that I had the honor of hearing his life story. At age 19, he and his sister, her husband, and toddler were on a train to Auschwitz. Their plan? At the next stop, Franz would jump first, catch the baby, then the others would follow. While Franz jumped, but woke up three days later after a concussion, never to see his sister again. It took four days to walk to his hometown where neighbors hid him in their attic, and Frank style, for over two years. On rare occasion, he'd go outside in the dark at night for a breath of air, never wanting to be seen by the grandchildren who might reveal their family's secret. While in isolation, he kept a strict schedule of daily reading, writing, and caring for his cat, The structure was his saving grace. That's probably why as a colleague, we met every morning at exactly 8.15 to discuss patient calls. He had the same coffee, the same Danish, cut in the same eight pieces every day. The family had five daughters and one sister had a boyfriend forced to serve in Hitler's army. At his own risk, the young soldier gave Franz a gun for protection. Borders were always changing between Poland and Germany. He had to learn Polish and Russian without an accent to survive. Sadly, Franz was the only member of his family to escape war-torn Germany, but he was always thankful to those who helped him survive and begin a new life. With only three semesters of college, he came to the U.S. in 1947. Fate led him to find work as a technician in the Jefferson Research Lab of Dr. John Gibbon where Franz's work led to a major breakthrough and the first successful surgery with the heart-lung machine. He then graduated first in his Jefferson class of 1953, distinguished himself as a resident, then trained in both GI and lung disease. Later, recognized nationally and internationally with multiple awards and was hailed as the president of the American College of Gastroenterology and the International Bacchus GI Society. He wrote 143 papers and practiced, until the age of 82. On several occasions, young Franz had looked death in the face. When I asked about his long hours of training in two fields at once, he said, after so many years of misery, anything would be better. He had survived the devastation of war and appreciated every day he had the chance to make the world a better place. Of his work with Dr. Gibbon, he humbly called himself a lowly lab tech and said, I did what I could. It was just a small step. I greatly admired Dr. Gibbon. During his final days in hospice at age 91, he recalled an epiphany he had during the war. He promised himself he'd never get ahead at the expense of another person and said, as I look back, I worked hard and I never did anything to be ashamed of. I never expected anyone to donate or do anything for me. And to make a new life, I'd have to do it for myself. I hope I helped a few people along the way, which we know he did. Two days ago was February 23rd, his birthday, and I always think of him on that day. It was very painful to say goodbye to my dear friend and mentor, a shining star in the medical community. Franz Goldstein was brilliant, refined, and humble. Grateful for his new life, he devoted his time, talent, and energy to the art of healing. It was painful for him to look back, so he focused on the future. We spent years in practice together And at that last visit, he told me he always looked at me as a daughter. Surely, Providence brought us together. My own father who had passed away was Frank, and now my mentor was Franz. And it wasn't until I read his death notice that I learned that the sister he lost in the war was Mary Ann. We salute you, Dr. Franz Goldstein. You're a real champion.
0: Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand.
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
5: When we ask
6: questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by
3: Independence Blue Cross.
0: This program is paid for by your radio doctor, LLC.
3: And a special thank you to our guest, Dr. Paul Offit, a world-renowned expert in the study of viruses and vaccines. We're getting a wonderful update on COVID and all of the ripples that need to be discussed. Paul, one of the things that worries people has been the attention paid to myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle. I guess you could get pericarditis too, or inflammation of the sac, which protects the heart. Let's talk about that a little bit um, because I guess you really could see it with lots of other causes, other viruses, but in specific people are concerned about myocarditis resulting from vaccine.
4: Well, first of all, the virus causes myocarditis also. Uh, we see it in our mm-hmm. hospital uh, with a disease um, – Called MIS-C, which is this sort of multi-system inflammatory disease, this sort of post-infectious inflammatory disease that affects primarily the five to thirteen-year-old, but but it's uh, and it's insidious. Uh, what happens is children um, have often a trivial infection that is just picked up because they were uh, exposed to a friend or family member, and then and they're fine. They're running around, they're playful. They their the fever's gone, and then a month later they come back with high fever an involvement of long liver kidney heart and and often uh, end up in the icu and occasionally die you probably had about 80 children roughly who have died of this and and that's myocarditis oh. i mean myocarditis occurs in 75% of those children so know that the virus can cause myocarditis now um, we didn't know the vaccine could do that. I think one of the, the, the uh, challenges, actually, when you were on this, this FDA vaccine advisory committee, is, for example, in December of 2020, we were presented with studies of 40,000 people by Pfizer, 30,000 people by Moderna, which is a typical size for any adult or pediatric vaccine trial, mm-hmm. which meant that 20,000 people got Moderna's, or 20,000 people got Pfizer's vaccine, 15,000 got Moderna's vaccine. That's not a lot of people. You know, when you're about to make a recommendation for hundreds of millions of people based on data on 10, 20,000 people, your heart is always in your throat a little bit because the history of, of uh, medical innovation is invariably associated with some human price that you didn't realize. And myocarditis was that. I don't think anybody would have predicted that these mRNA vaccines would cause myocarditis. Now, the, he, the, the general story on that is roughly the incidence is roughly one per 50,000 in general. For, for a, a 16 to 17-year-old male, I'll, I'll say a week after that second dose, it's about 1 in 6,600, which is more common. And for, if you look at children, say, between 5 and 11, it's about 1 in 500,000, which is roughly the instance of getting, you know, struck by lightning. So, I mean, it's it's rare. The the, the, the one thing about the myocarditis associated with the vaccine is, for the most part, it is short-lived, temporary self-resolving. But I think as is true with any uh, any disease or disorder in medicine, there is always a, a spectrum of illness. So I think we're going to find out more about this and whether there's any residual issues, you know, on one year from now, two years from now, three years from now. But I think it, it's people need to know that, that certainly for males and young males, uh, they are at a special risk of this uh, this phenomenon which is to say remember it's much more common with the vac- with the virus and with the vaccine but if you don't really need a booster dose if there's not clear evidence for the, for the need of a booster dose in a healthy young man don't give it because I think the thing that, that upsets me the most when people say is, well, what can it hurt? Um, any any biological that you give that has a positive effect can have a negative effect. If it never has any negative effect, it probably never had a positive effect. So just be uh, be humble about this and realize that uh, everything has a price. The operative
3: word, be humble. And again, I guess that's what one of the points you made in your editorial in the New England Journal. Be aware that when we stimulate the immune system, either mother nature or our vaccination, that we want to be really sure. So myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle, which is our pump, um, it seems, I guess, fortunately, if it comes from the vaccination, that from vaccine and or booster or vaccination?
4: Well, so it's either, it's either. Uh, but it's, it tends to be, it's no more common after a booster dose right. than after okay. the second dose.
3: But usually it happens um within a week, as opposed to natural infection, it, it pops up a month later. And so far, fingers crossed, the episodes or the, the cases seem to be a little bit milder. And uh, fortunately, the, the children, uh, actually young men up to their later 20s, yes, yeah, somewhere like yeah, between that's 12 that, and 29, that's exactly more often right. than males than females. So that brings us to any adverse effects for any vaccine or booster. We have a national database, right? The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Let's talk about that a little bit. Has that been handled differently for... COVID vaccinations than other vaccines?
4: No, I think it's just been more of a, a focus for the public because we have so much attention to this vaccine. So it's the, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System was born of the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act under the Reagan administration in 1986. And the goal was to give anybody who, who feels that there was a problem associated with a the vaccine, they can then report to this system. Anybody, doctors, nurses, personal injury lawyers, anti-vaccine activists, anybody can report. And, and it all gets included in the system. There's no filtering. Anything out, so I think at best it it can be it can be a warning system. It can be a hypothesis generating system, but it's not a hypothesis testing system because you're only looking at got a vaccine, had a problem. You're not looking at you know got a vaccine, didn't have a problem, or didn't get a vaccine and had a problem, or didn't have a problem. So you need all four pieces of information, and Vars only gives you one piece of information. So so um, and so, for example, there was a, uh, a physician who reported that his son got a vaccine and turned into the Incredible Hulk. Okay, and that was included in the VARES program. So the point is, is that there's no filtering out. Um, and so it's, then there's other systems like the VSafe system or the Vaccine Safety Data Link, which then can look at people who got the vaccine or didn't get the vaccine to see whether the incidence of that problem was greater in the vaccinated group. And that's the only way to determine causality. You you can't, deter- you can't distinguish coincidence from causality in VARES, but you can in something like the Vaccine Safety Data Link.
3: And it's the, they hope the, the pattern that we use for any experiment: if somebody uh, takes aspirin and uh, you know their hair grows back, maybe with some, it, you have to repeat it. We, you know, Cox postulate: you can't believe a cause a causative effect unless you can repeat it. And I guess it's compared. We could compare it to the internet. There's a lot of information there. But you need a good filter. You need a calendar for all that information and somebody like you to put it all together and say, we see a trend or we know this from SARS-1 that that seems to parallel with SARS-2. How about um, what we'd call excess mortality statistics? What are we seeing with that? People who die from COVID versus other, you know, somebody admitted to the hospital, they've been in a car accident. And they happen to have COVID, and, and that sort of thing. We're not really seeing excess, are we?
4: So, so that's a really good point. What we need to, the what, what, here's what you really want from the CDC. What you want from the CDC is who is getting hospitalized and dying from this virus. Who is it? And separate out those people who are getting hospitalized with COVID as compared to for COVID, meaning meaning they just happen to be incidentally infected with COVID, but are being admitted for another reason. I mean, at our hospital, anyone who comes into the hospital is screened to see if they have COVID, um, even if they're coming in for a completely different reason. And those all count as COVID admissions. And so... Um, here, where we don't have a national health system, it's often hard to get that kind of information because that's what you want to know. What you really want to know, who, who's getting hospitalized? How old are they? What, are, what exactly are their comorbidities? Have they been vaccinated? If so, when was their last dose? Did If they were in a high-risk group, did they get an antiviral? Who is it that's at risk? Because then and only then can you determine who's going to most benefit from booster doses moving forward. Because right now, the current plan is everybody gets a booster dose. And I don't think that's... That makes sense, uh, given that we really should target those who are at highest risk. And we, uh, at least to date, haven't done that.
3: And as you said earlier, it's because every time you poke the bear, every time you stimulate the immune system, there there are potential risks. Plus, if we keep saying, look at this, you know, as you said, the ancestral variant or the very first one, everybody else is a descendant, I guess. Um You're going to keep reminding our immune systems to pay attention to door number one and then four or five and six come and the distractions there and you're not as prepared. So let's talk about, we have a few minutes left, Paul, the significance of President Biden's recent announcement to end both the public health declaration and the national emergency status of the pandemic. What does that mean? May 11th, I believe is the date.
4: Yeah, so a couple things. I think one is technically, if there's no longer an emergency or declared emergency, then you can't, you really technically can't use vaccines that are approved only through emergency use authorization. They would have to be licensed products. My understanding is that's all in the works and that licensure will very quickly follow. So I don't think that's going to be an issue. I think the bigger issue is who pays. I mean, who's going to be paying for these Mm. vaccines? Who's going to be paying for the antiviral drugs? I mean, how does that work? Because I think, the way that likely will play out is the way that much in medicine plays out, which is that there will be uh, a group who will uh, who will be able to afford it, who are you know, who are uh, who have excellent insurance, and then there will be those who aren't. So I think that's going to be unfortunate, but we'll see how it plays out. Yeah.
3: Well, I guess that would apply to testing as well, right? You you're able right. to get free uh, COVID tests, and um, and that won't be good because. People will say, I feel fine. I can't afford the test itself. Lastly,
4: Paul, yeah, i, I oh, Yeah, I think, just, just sorry. Well, I, think, I think moving forward, if you're in a high-risk group and you have, you know, congestion, cough, runny nose, fever, you know, the, the, which can be typical of any viral respiratory infection, influenza, parainfluenza, respiratory syncytial virus, and, and COVID, test yourself. Because there, if you're positive, you should take an antiviral. You especially, if you're in a high-risk group, should take an antiviral. If you're not in a high-risk group, um, just assume <laughs> that you have COVID, and 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 don't go to work if you if you if you can avoid going to work. Or if you have to go to work, at least wear a mask. Because see, people make the the false assumption. Well, I don't have COVID, so I'm good. But you know, influenza can also cause hospitalizations and deaths, and so can respiratory syncytial viruses, so can parainfluenza. Sure. All these viruses can do that. So, and they're all potentially deadly. So just just have respect for all those viruses.
3: Yes, and you bring up a great point. Tons of people, friends, patients will say to me. Oh, I'm COVID negative. I'm good to go. And I'm like, did you ever hear of pneumonia? Did you ever hear of RSV from your grandchildren? I was so sick with RSV last year. So what is the current treatment for COVID? As you say, there's the oral Paxlovid, and we may see a resurfacing of convalescent serum, I guess.
4: Right. So right now, the number one treatment would be Paxlovid. Uh, the number two treatment is Remdesivir, which is limited by... the Paxlovid is limited to some extent because there's a lot of drug-drug interactions, which makes it difficult for some mm-hmm. people to take. Remdesivir doesn't have those the same level of drug-drug interactions, but it's given only intravenously currently. However, there was recently a study in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that, that there is an oral form of Remdesivir that appears to perform just as well as Paxlovid. So that's probably around the corner. Um, monoclonal antibodies are gone. I, I, don't, I don't see them coming back. I don't see the companies being willing to spend that kind of money on research and development when monoclonal antibodies can be good one minute and not good three or four months later. So I don't mm-hmm. see that happening. Convalescent sera may, may come back. I mean, it, it, certainly if there's a virus that's spread that's resistant to everything we have, there's always convalescent sera. It's been around for you know more than 100 years and it does does work.
3: So a couple of distinctions for our listeners. Paxlovid, one of the meds interactions is if you're on a statin, am I right about that? That people should be aware before they take a new drug tell your doc what other meds you take if it's not your primary care doc convalescent serum means taking the serum from somebody who's been infected and they have all the big guns all jazzed up ready to to help a sick patient monoclonal antibodies were that was the infusion that was prepared gen, genetically engineered and that's what you're saying that's probably gone the wayside let's take a little break
4: right i think and we'll done.
3: be back for our wrap up with Dr Paul Offit.
0: Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross.
7: Hi, I'm Sarah Rivera, Director of Nursing from Recovery Centers of America, one of your addiction experts from RCA. Today I'm here to talk to you about Narcan. Narcan is a medication used as an antidote for overdose. An overdose occurs when a patient or individual takes an opioid in excess. Opioids impact the respiratory system, decreasing the rate and depth of breathing. The breath will become shallow or they stop breathing altogether. This is called an overdose. Some of the signs and symptoms of an overdose are unresponsive to loud sound, being shaken, or external rough. The breathing is irregular and shallow, may even slow or stop. Skin will become gray or purple. Nail beds will become white. The pupils will become pinpoint. The body will become limp. Breathing will become gurgly. The patient may snore, or you may hear some choking. Skin will become cold, clammy, or diaphoretic. Regardless of if you are aware if the patient has overdosed or not, Narcan can be used. It comes intranasally in a name brand generally called Narcan. You can and get this over-the-counter at the pharmacy in prescription or non-prescription form. When in doubt it is safer to give Narcan. There are limited side effects. The benefits outweigh the risk of not giving Narcan. If the patient has a pulse and is not breathing or vice versa, it is okay to still administer Narcan. Every three minutes you may give another dose as it is estimated that it takes EMTs seven to eight minutes to arrive on site. However, brain damage begins at four minutes. Risk factors for overdose include a new dealer, not using for a period of time, new city residential location, new route of administration, medical conditions, age of the individual, combining it with other drugs, and using heroin that contains unknown and dangerous substances such as fentanyl. As you begin 2023 and look for a fresh start, reach out to Recovery Centers of America if you or one of your loved ones need help with alcohol or drugs. Call 1-877-938-0618 or visit recoverycentersofamerica.com backslash Devin. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week. At Independence Blue
5: Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Learn more about your coverage options at ibx.com.
2: Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems.
3: Welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor. Our wrap-up session is called Your Weekly Prescription, brought to you by Genentech. Dr. Paul Offit, it has been such a treat to hear your clear, logical explanations about the immune system its response, how we should think about boosters, how we should think about what is a successful vaccination and protection from this virus that continues to mutate. What's your take-home message for our listeners?
4: My take-home message is we're doing great. I mean, if you look at where we were in 2020, We didn't have monoclonals. We didn't have antivirals. We didn't have vaccines. We had a blank slate. There was no population immunity. All we had was trying to avoid person-to-person contact. I mean, probably the most uh, upsetting discovery back in 2020 was that you could be highly contagious and be asymptomatic. So, therefore, everybody was a potential uh, carrying a potentially fatal virus that's where we were then i mean now we have all those other things we have 96% population immunity and even the original vaccine that we were using still protects against against serious illness at least for healthy young people so I think we're doing great. The virus, although the virus, first of all, all viruses mutate. What this virus is, does also is it drifts, meaning it creates these variant strains, which are, are much more resistant in terms of protection against mild disease if you've been previously infected or vaccinated. So that that's what's happened with this virus, and it's happened. There are four strains of human coronavirus that also circulate in, in this country every year, that account for maybe fifteen or twenty percent of winter respiratory hospitalizations that also do the same thing. So this is not terribly surprising, but you're still protected against severe disease. And that's, that is the goal. But you have to have a realistic understanding of this. This mm-hmm. virus is going to be with us for decades, if not longer. I mean, influenza has been with us since the mid-1300s. So let's assume this virus is going to be with us for a while. I think we're going to have to get used to mild infection and realize is that when you have a mild infection, that there are people in this country who can't be vaccinated or who are at high risk and, and respect that.
3: Mm-hmm. And the flu vaccine, the yearly flu vaccine, we have the luxury of being given a sneak peek when we look at the other hemisphere where the flu seems to uh, encroach upon those people six months earlier than it comes to us. And that helps you decide what vaccine to prepare according to the strain that has surfaced. Do you think that we'll have those kind of helpful hints in the future? Will it hit certain parts of the world? You know, new variants of COVID. Do you think the same will apply? Or we might not have that luxury. I don't. I mean, just,
4: flu is really strain specific. You, you have to, when we said we're going to sit down on March 7th and pick flu strains for for the September rollout, um, you really have to be be right mm-hmm. on the strain. I, I don't think that's really true for no. COVID. I mean, even if, I mean, look, now we're at like XBB15 and you've gotten vaccinated with Wuhan 1, you're still protected against severe disease. So this isn't flu. And I don't really see the flu model necessarily being mm-hmm. relevant.
3: Wouldn't that be nice that would Make it a little bit easier. Paul, overall in these almost three years, what has been your biggest surprise? Um, how effective these vaccines are. Uh,
4: I, I mean, here was here was a, a, a
3: virus yeah. we'd never
4: seen before, and and we approached it with a, a technology we'd never used before. We, we, there's no experience with mRNA vaccines. There is no other mRNA vaccines. And h- how well it's worked and how consistently it's worked, I think, is what surprised me the most.
3: Well, if I get to be on the committee to vote, I think you should be Mr. Nobel Prize winner of the <laughs> universe, because you've worked so hard, written 12 books, you say what you think, and that's what we need. Because I really think, Paul, what, what I tell my own children and my students and residents and fellows, if everybody in the room is saying the same thing, maybe we're not thinking. Good to work together. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time. Dr. Paul Offit, superstar, we really appreciate you.
4: Thank you. It's my pleasure, Mary. The
3: Sierra Center, FMC, Lit Brothers, the Franklin Institute, the Lowe's Hotel for PSFS, BNY Mellon, 1 and 2 Liberty Place, Parktown Place Apartments, Boathouse Road, the Ben Franklin Bridge, and we invite you to join the campaign. Put a strand of blue lights on the front of your home or business. Send us a photo to info at This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, safe week, with the ones you love, always here to remind you that your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show, as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre recorded.